Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. But before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Human Octane. If you're the kind of person who pushes the limit, then you've got to check out Human Octane Apparel. Training and racing apparel designed by OCR athletes and these guys just get it. Everything they make dries lightning fast, has zippered pockets, is abrasion resistant in high contact areas without bulky padding. I've gotten to know these guys and trust me, they're going to out-innovate the competition when it comes to OCR gear. Check them out at humanoctane.com. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. Okay, here we go. We are, let's see, getting towards the end of October. We've got a ton of stuff still coming up. We've got the world's toughest championships coming up very, very, very soon. I've got my wingman, Sean Kahn, on the horn with me. And we're just going to talk about current events. And, and uh, hopefully we're going to touch on some things that I think that a lot of people are interested in hearing relative to training. I know that a lot of you come to me for that or come to us for that. And so we're going to see if we can give you some snippets you could take away. But uh, what do you think, Sean? Can we kind of talk a little bit about current events? Let's do it. You know, it's uh, it's good to be back with you, Rich. And, you know, a lot, it's crazy. OCR, a lot is happening in just such a short time. And I think we should start with probably the biggest news in regards to controversy with the whole Tough Mudder uh, changing payouts a month before, you know, their big kahuna. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Wow. Well, initially my thought was that was kind of a shitty thing to do. And I read the, uh, the response to Miguel Medina's open letter where they kind of laid it out and said, okay, here's why we did it. And I thought that the argument was pretty compelling. I think the timing was really, really bad. Short of anything else, I, I just that's what I took away from it. And from what I gathered, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they looked at the math. They looked at the payout relative to what occurs in that two-man team versus the rest of the payouts and what could be the case had they encourage more people to do these national teams. And I don't know, it just seemed like a really good business decision. I know it sucks for the guys that are or, or have been uh, training all season in hopes of winning that money and have it just kind of yanked away from them at the last minute. That was pretty poor judgment, I think. But um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's kind of much of the same. I don't know hundred percent of the details. Uh, I saw the letter that was really well, well written by Miguel. It, it's kind of that whole ethical dilemma of in, on one side, the business um, from their side, because like you said, it, it's a compelling argument, but I just don't think you can do something like this, you know, a week or sorry, a month before an event, not to mention, especially that some of these guys, this is their Super Bowl. So, you know, you take, um, you know, a racer that is racing really responsibly throughout the year, they're training really only for this. And then to tell them that the cash value of that event is pretty much gone. Uh, it's, I really feel for, you know, uh, Miguel and then the rest of the competitors that were going after, you know, that two man, um, that two man hunt. And I believe they reallocated it to a four team or sorry, a four person team. So I hope that, you know, in that, in that regard, um, everybody's able to kind of work together to, to just find a way to salvage that. But it's a tough one uh, because to, to one side it's business and to the one side it's, it's, you know, taking care of the athletes. And I think they took care of the business rather than the athletes in this one. Well, and the other end of it is if you, if you look back at the uh, previous four man efforts, it's kind of a sucker's bet, you know, it's so much tougher to wrangle four people into 
a performance than it is to wrangle two. If you go out on your own, you pretty much know what you're capable of. And you may narrow the focus down to two guys and have a pretty good sense of how that's going to shake out, having trust in one other fella or one other lady. And you have a sense of how that's going to go. But four is complicated, man. I mean, it's really tough to get four guys to be able to pull this off. And going back to Miguel again, he knows better than anybody what that means because they've had some, some mishaps occur in their four-man efforts in the past. And I've seen the same thing occur with uh, Nicodemus Holland and his group where, quite frankly, he pulled it out for himself at the very last minute, but really no money in it. It was a four-man thing, and he had to opt out and become a one-man guy. Decision came late. If he'd been able to make the decision earlier, he probably would have done better. But uh, I just don't like the four-man format. Now, if you look at it as a national expression, so you're bringing nations together and having them compete with one another i get the value in that and i get the the way that that would offer new flavor that has merit but again the the biggest thing in all of this is the way it was conducted they pulled the rug out from underneath these guys at the last minute and just think of the events that someone may have decided not to do where they may have earned a little bit of money because they're putting all their eggs in one basket, that being world's toughest mutter. Exactly. I mean, it's just, yeah, it goes back to the the point of, you know, when you're making your schedule and, you know, you're prioritizing races, and this is pretty much everybody that's really trying to win that money, they're a plus-plus race. And, you know, if you're going into that two-team format to, you know, those competitors and not only from just to two to four, but just think from a training perspective, a lot of those guys, you know, either live together or work together. And I would almost think it's easier to get two people together than four people together um, and, and just work together. So it's, it's a tough one uh, just to do it a month before. I mean, for tough mutter, it's been just such, such a fantastic year with tough mutter X and some of the other things that they're doing, but to do something like this, it's, it's tough. And the organization has crammed a bunch of races into the season. And honestly, I think there is essentially a, a quiet battle between Spartan and Tough Mudder for legitimacy. They're just trying to one-up each other. And, and I don't know whether that's really in the best interest of the athletes. I think it really becomes more a function of one business trying to outdo the other. And in the middle of all that, we have athletes trying to make decisions about what events they're going to participate in or what camp that they're going to follow. And I don't know, man. It's We need, and I believe and I've heard, that uh, the OCR folk out of Canada are planning on adding some national events. Do you know anything about that? All I, I know, and I... I, I know that they have that enduro race in, I believe it's Sydney, Australia next year, but I, I don't know about uh, what you were saying uh, in terms of the national events. I'm trying to remember who told me about it, but I, I should have probably got my, my details together before I started discussing it. But um, what I've heard is that they're planning on a series of events. And I think that's going to be great because what's really necessary in this sport, I believe, is another player. And if you recall, back when there was a battle frog, the competitive flavor between these three major events uh, was a lot more interesting than just two guys going toe-to-toe with each other for supremacy. Yeah, uh, especially when you think, uh, and we, we touched on it in terms of the whole Tahoe with uh, you know, the NBC Championship Series really getting some traction. Uh, from NBC and, and Tough Mudder with CBS, uh, you know, the, the more we could do things like this and the more exposure uh, in terms of a national scope, the only thing that it does for the sport is just help it grow, make it better, and get more money pumped into the athletes, you know. Right. And money's going to so, be the ticket. Of course. It's going to be the ticket. Now, so that you have to ask yourself whether the allocation of that those funds to the team without – supporting that two-man thing was a good idea but you know just kind of people don't quite get it i mean just to say okay well all right we're going to hold up and we're going to go ahead and put that hundred thousand dollars worth of money 
into the team thing and we're going to keep the other thing and we're going to keep the I mean you can go broke pretty quick <laughs> if you're not yeah. careful you just you got to be careful what you say right well here's an outwardly thought too and I have I just kind of thought of this as we're talking about it it'd really be interesting to see if some of those athletes were just so upset about this that they didn't do world's toughest and they did Iceland the month after I don't think that's going to happen yeah okay no, no I don't I mean I'm sure there are people that are going to go to Iceland. I'm training somebody for Iceland, but I, I don't know uh, how, how. Have you heard any scuttlebutt about that? You got a lot of people that you know going to Iceland? Not that I know, but I believe that they've reached the quota for it to actually happen. So that, I, that to my knowledge, is kind of what I've heard. So, um, huh. but that that's all. That's all really that I've heard from that camp. So, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know anybody. I mean, I've, I've heard that Miguel was talking about going. I don't know whether that's a lock yet. Um, I don't really know anybody going to Iceland. Other, I have, like I said, I have one client. She lives in Singapore, though, and she's going. But maybe she'll win. There's <laughs> 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 nobody else going to be there. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, but, you never know. So It's so obscure. I mean, going way, way, way. I mean... It's kind of sexy that it's you know off off the beaten path so to speak, but I don't know whether that's uh, that's a pretty bold move. It's a pretty bold move to go all the way to Iceland. Yeah, and I, it's just amazing that you know you can have almost four championships in four months with you know Tahoe o OCR World Championships, World's Toughest, and then I don't know if we classify Iceland as a championship. I think that's what they're doing, but yeah. So it's it's well hopefully pl plus plus. The recent news of Spartan putting on these national championships and putting on these championships around the country, I mean, excuse me, around the world, where, uh, geez, I don't have it in front of me, but the, these regional championships in various, I mean, Asia, the Middle East, and various parts of the world, that's a bold move, too. I mean, it's like, wow, it's like all of a sudden it's just jumped out. Yeah, the, the growth factor uh, has, has completely went worldly, which is, it, it's very, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, now that we're on the topic of that, what do you think, and I don't know if you've read too much into it about the Spartan really going into age group um, kind of brackets um, when it comes to just their new format next year? I, don't, I just, I don't know, man. It's like, I get it. It's a new sport and everybody's trying to figure out their way. Um. I don't know what the benefit's going to be. I don't know what the benefit's going to be, to be very honest with you. And I've had people argue that they don't even want to see an elite field, that they, they're either a professional or they're amateurs, right? And I think that there needs to be some qualifications if you're going to compete as a pro as opposed to elite. And then it does make better sense, I think, to break it down to age groups I don't know whether that introduces more money or less money. I mean, I don't know. This whole conversation, I've been winging it. I really don't have all the details here. It's just a matter of opinion. But uh, look at uh, Iron Man. Iron Man has age group events. There's no categorization of like elite, competitor, novice type thing. There's just age groupers and there's pro field, right? And I don't know whether they just said, hey, we should just follow a successful model. This seems to be what's been going on really well for Ironman over the years. I don't know. Most running events are run that way. It's the same thing. That's um, what I've heard as well. Just the emulation to Ironman triathlon and, and, and things like that. Uh, you know, it's an interesting move. I just wonder whether there's going to be any money, any interesting money, I should say, for the age groupers. Yeah, and it could be like OCR World Championships where I believe they did age group and then the winner, I mean, it, it wasn't such, I mean, it's a championship event. It was, I believe, 700, 350, and then 100. And then obviously the pros, you know, you get 10,000 if you win, things like that. So I think if that's going to be the case, I think you put dilute the cash values a bit just because, you know, um, that, that was a championship, that would be a normal race. It, it, I, I'm, I'm very interested to see the, the structure of that because – that just kind of gives lead way to maybe some of those people in the middle of the pack in the elite field, they go age group and, you know, they're competing for the top three of their age group. So, and then, you know, there's also the, the whole concept of team efforts 
in Spartan. I wonder if there's opportunity for that to happen. What about a pro team in Spartan? And, man, and when you say pro team, can you expound upon that? Because, I mean, Spartan has their pro team, but are you talking about just in terms of just events? Well, I'm talking about pro team like a four-man or four-female team. Gotcha. You know, why not, right? Yeah, absolutely. But then again, it's just more ways to spend money. And the, the, the goal of any business is to make money, not spend it. Yep. No, that makes sense. So I, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, I know you've been busy. Uh, how about we uh, talk a little more about your, the, those clinics that are coming up? Yeah, pretty excited, man. I mean, we, uh, I got a hold of Yancey. As a matter of fact, we spoke at uh, Tahoe. We got together. I was doing some taping on some of the athletes prior to the, the race out at Lake Tahoe. And I broached the subject with him. We've talked about it before. I said, let's do a super camp. Let's do something where we get people out to the West Coast and just kind of add you to the fray and see what we can come up with. And we, we initially talked about doing like a, like a five-day thing and maybe having people, because once upon a time I was going to do something at Pepperdine University and we had arranged to use the campus and their facilities. And it was a pretty cool idea. It was for a running coaches certification. And um, I scuttled the mission because I just didn't like the numbers. It turned out to be, quite frankly, from a business perspective, I thought it was gonna be a loser. There were plenty of people interested, but the expenses were about neck and neck with the potential. And it was just gonna be more work uh, and less earning, you know, here I am starting to sound like these other events, right? But, uh, Yancey and I got together and we said, let's do like a three day thing. And I had already on schedule put up January 13th and 14th. I've got another event here in March and I have another one scheduled in June. I put them about two months apart. And my thinking was, I know what I'll do. I mean, I know, I'm not going anywhere. I don't have to travel to make this happen. And I've already been doing clinics here. I do more clinics here than I do anywhere. And I have the lay of the land. I have the home turf advantage. And when I put the events on here, they're awesome. I just, because everything is, is tight. We know how things are going to shake out. Where when I travel, I'm kind of left to the designs of my hosts, the people that say, hey, we're going to go over to this park or that park and and uh, it's going to be great. And then we get there and it's a mud hole or something, you know, <laughs> where, where here I have my lab and I have my tools and I can do a really, really good job with the testing. And I also have a chance to get some clean looks at people while they're on my treadmill. And my treadmill is a monster. It's not your typical treadmill. I have the ability to do some pretty crazy things on it. Uh, for example, the ability to run the belt in both directions, which means I can have you running towards me while I look at you and draw some conclusions based on your gait that way. Uh, my cameras are set up permanently in there. I can get some things up on a big screen and look at things. There's just a lot of opportunities that I have locally at, uh, in the secret lab that I don't have when I'm on the road. So that already was a big deal. But I thought, let's bring Yancey out. And Yancey, hands down, is probably the best coach in the country, possibly one of the best coaches in the world when it comes to OCR, grip-oriented activities, and how these grips marry up with running and things like this. And then my flavor that I toss into to the deal is the running mechanics and gait analysis and helping people to get the fundamentals running and, and all this stuff. So we decided to put it into three days. And uh, again, since I have the home court advantage, we've decided to take a third day and take people into the Santa Monica Mountains, which incidentally is very, very near my home. From my front door to the beach, uh, into the entrance of Sycamore Canyon, which I, I've been training in for over 20 years, is about 20 minutes. It's pretty quick. And so we intend to take people into the canyon, up into the trails, trails that I know, serious climbing, 
Uh, not crazy elevation, but definitely some quality training. Some, some carries are going to be involved. We're going to get a chance to get people out on the beach. Now, mind you, we're talking January, and I don't know what the weather is going to be like for a lot of people in January, but I know what it's going to be like here. It's probably going to be in the middle of the day, mid-70s. It's going to be California weather. And we're just a little north of Malibu. We're going to get that whole beach flavor. And then there's a really serious sand dune right next to where we're going, which is, it presents a tremendous opportunity to allow people to suffer a bit. And uh, so we're going to tie all that together over the course of three days. And the other thing that I hope to do, since I have people here again in my own home camp, I'm going to put a little bit of a clinic together on taping, flossing, and just essentially self-help prevention stuff, dealing with injuries that everybody, you know, in this sport, everybody gets hurt. And knowing how to get a front line on these injuries and what kind of things you could be doing to ensure that you get back out on the road, back out on the trail quicker so you don't miss any precious training time is a big deal. And again, I do this typically, and I don't speak about it, but I typically do that everywhere I go. But I'm going to try to give a little more comprehensive approach to it this time. I think I'm going to get everybody involved in the process where I'm going to have them taping each other and teaching them different applications. So it's going to be pretty cool. It's going to be pretty robust. I have uh, Rock Tape is on board with me. That By the way, they are now authentically involved in sponsoring us again, which is awesome. So I have some latitude there. I talked to Steve Capobianco. He's offered to even provide me with some of the presentation material that they provide when they certify people in this work. And, you know, Steve and I have known each other for about nine years. So he knows me, he knows what I'm up to, and he knows what I'm capable of. So he was confident enough to allow me to dip into their lecture series information. And uh, so it's going to be good stuff. Uh, I'm really, really looking forward to it. By the way, if somebody's listening to this right now and going, oh, cool, I'm going to do that, I got bad news for you. It's sold out. The, uh, the testing is sold out regardless. So you could kick, scream, scratch all you like. I just do not have enough time or room to take any more people for that aspect of things. However, the hands-on, the gate work, the two-day component, the taping and all that stuff we're going to do over the Saturday and Sunday, that is still available, and that's only 175 bucks. If you want to get some real serious education and respect to improving the way you move, reduce injuries, deal with injuries, get out there and train with Yancey, who is the master of a lot of this, this is an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting uh, just uh, for, for you and just see, I think how fast did it sell out? Because uh, you put it up, what, two or three days ago? And I, it pretty. I put it up on Saturday afternoon. Yeah. No scuttlebutt. I just popped it up there on social media. I didn't advertise it anywhere else. And it sold out yesterday. And we're talking January, wow. right? So people, oh, of course. Yeah, people were really responsive. And I still have people coming at me wanting to squeeze in somehow or another. But I'm telling you, don't. Don't get despondent. And incidentally, I should say this too. My methodology is when I do testing, I recommend that the people that are being tested hang around and watch as others be tested because that is an education unto itself. You learn so much from just watching the process and seeing the outcome of the test and learning what all this information means. So even... If you were to come away from it and having not been tested, the education you'd gain just by hanging around over the course of those days is fine. And we're not going to run you off because you didn't pay for the testing. You know, we're going to try to fit everybody into the secret lab that wants to sit around and, and watch. And we're going to let them participate. So uh, I won't be able to get you up on the cart. I won't be able to actually physically test you if you're not already registered. But you're still going to get a, a pretty good education. So I would highly recommend that anybody that signs up for the last two days that they do make a point. You're going to be here. Why not, right? Come on out and check it out. Well, I could say from firsthand experience being at one of your clinics, uh, that's that's a you know inherent part of the clinic. And just you know you bouncing off a lot of knowledge in terms of just what's happening with that specific person and 
just getting to see that, I mean, now putting it at your home turf in terms of the secret lab and having all of your gizmos and gadgets with you, uh, for sure. I mean, I think uh, anybody that's going to the clinic definitely needs to do that. That's cool. So we're on the subject of heart rate. And I know that a lot of my clients and the people that I interact with, that's really a very interesting topic for them. How is your training going? I mean, I'm assuming that you, since you've been testing, what have you, you've been employing heart rate in your training. What, just for the sake of others to listen, what has been, what works, what has been that hasn't worked, what confuses you? Let's just kind of kick it around a little bit. Look, give people a little bit of a chance to better understand the value of this information. Sure. So I think from an aerobic perspective, uh, spending a lot of time with that, and that's, you know, within the levels that I got from the tests. For me, it's 155 to 165 beats per minute. Um, building my base and using, you know, that form, uh, looking at my metronome and, you know, mirroring um, pretty much my steps per minute and just trying to stay within all of that and, and stay within the process of the heart rate. And what I've gotten from that essentially is being able to build the mileage in terms of the, the running on that. And then also while building the mileage, decreasing the pace. So for me, I'm, I'm going towards a marathon in December. Um, I'm increasing my mileage, even though it's kind of off season because I have no more OCR races. Um, aerobic base training is still a huge, huge part of that. And it's been like that even in between races. Um, from an anaerobic perspective, uh, for example, today I was doing mile repeats and just staying within that threshold of my anaerobic uh, distance, not going to the red line, not, you know, busting my balls in terms of, you know, going after uh, just a, a pace, but really just trying to put a good cost of energy there within the same structure of staying uh, within the form. And then also um, just increasing my leg, uh, leg strength in terms of just uh, cross training days. So cool. right now that's kind of what I'm, I'm focusing on. I, uh, wrote a piece, I'm sure you're familiar with it, it was, it was called uh, Training the Dark Side. Oh, I read it. Yeah. And obviously, I've said it too many times and I'm tired of talking about it, but I'm writing a book and that will be the, the, um, the name of the book. And the focus is going to be dealing with lactate tolerance. And I think the biggest problem people face with training not having had the opportunity to get tested is understanding their limitations with this lactate intolerance so let me expound on that a bit generally people talk a lot about their aerobic zone they talk about okay i know that like you just suggested between around 150 160 beats per minute is kind of your range for being aerobic. And the simple math would be, if you just hung out between 150 and 160, in your case, and based on uh, the information I provided you, and, and again, I don't have it in front of me, so I don't know how precise that is, but I'll trust you and say that, let's just say that about 155 would be a safe aerobic place for you. Now, there's an opportunity that exists when you get a little above the top end of that aerobic zone. And I don't want to call it a lactate threshold. Uh, and those terms, I think, for a lot of people become very confusing as well. It's a function of interpretation. And for a lot of people, what they construe as a lactate threshold is way, way too hot to train at when I'm talking about a sustained effort. And so there's this wiggle room above the aerobic potential zone. And let's go back to this lactate tolerance or lactate threshold. There's some opportunity that exists in that window that if you get a little too hot, it becomes unsustainable and less valuable. And if it's a little bit too low, the same thing applies. You're not going to get the value that you had hoped for. And so this, what I refer to as training the dark side, I refer to it as the dark side simply because it's, 
it's so innocuous. It's so, so difficult to kind of put your finger on, especially if you're dealing from predictive measures. It really requires that somebody not just tests you, but has a look at the way you're functioning relative to the expense. Because let's say, for example, in a 14-minute test or even a 10-minute test, if I was to take you to 170 beats per minute, it may be sustainable for you for, say, five minutes. But you're gonna, the wheels will fall off the bus if you're at that pace for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And certainly, the cost associated with that heart rate is going to bleed your sugar stores off, and it's not going to be sustainable, especially in your case when you're speaking of running a marathon. So knowing when you have the latitude to push, knowing when you're doing too much, it's no longer sustainable, is really the magic. This is the thing that you need to learn to master between now and your marathon, by the way. This is why... I spend so much energy with time trials. Incidentally, I wrote a piece on that as well, which is a free download that's associated with this site. And I'll just let people know if they're looking for it and have not heard about it. Go to the site and you'll see in the navigation, there's a thing that says about the coach, I think it says. And you go there and it's going to open up and you'll see a couple icons. One that actually has the icon of lactate tolerance training or training the dark side. And then there's also one called Art of the Time Trial. These are free downloads. You can just download them and read them at your leisure. But these are really important and interrelated papers because your time trials really get back to how you measure the result of your effort. And training the dark side is about determining what heart rate is going to be sustainable and what the expense is going to be associated with it. So let's put this into real-world context. You're going to run, which marathon is it again? I forgot. Yeah, it's the Dallas Marathon. Okay, so you're running the Dallas Marathon. What's the course like? Pretty flat? Uh, pretty flat, yeah, pretty flat. All right, so let's just say that you try to manage your P's and Q's, and you figure uh, you're going to be conservative, you're going to stay at about 155 beats per minute, and you're going to try to stay there, so let's, what do you hope to finish? 320. All right, so you're looking for a 320. What's a 155 heart rate pace look like for you? 155. Uh, so it's interesting because in terms of, let's say, when I'm doing a lot of these aerobic runs, there's a trail kind of around my a place, and I'm staying within that threshold, but a lot of that trail is, is kind of going uphill. Um, so so for me, I would probably have to venture to say 740 to 750. Okay, um, so you're looking at a sub-eight-minute pace at your yeah. aerobic heart rate. Mm -hmm. So if we're to do the math, if you stayed on an average eight-minute pace for 26 miles, what would, what would that put you? Uh, I'd, uh, I'd have to. Yeah, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> because this is uh, not a live show. <laughs> I'm going to pull up a pace calculator. Math. Okay. Uh, I got a pace calculator in here somewhere. Hang on. Sing a song while I pull this up. Keep people engaged. All right. Yeah. So here we go. Uh, pace calculator. So if you're to run an eight minute pace, that'll put you at 316.30 for a marathon. So easy peasy, right? So, Stay at 155 the whole way. Hope that your your pace doesn't fall off mm -hmm. as, you, as you heat up, as you start to burn through whatever sugar reserves you have relative to that particular pace. Yep. And your form doesn't start to degrade and you don't start to develop some kind of issue with your knee, your hip, your back, whatever, right? As well as the feeding strategy being on point. Yeah, that goes right back with the energy costs, right? Mm -hmm, so, so what I would do, and incidentally, this is in my book, is you would do a few 20-mile time trials. Have you done those yet? Not yet. And, well, we're looking at, you got, uh, coming up on November, it's coming up, you got to do them soon. Yep. Uh, what's the date of the marathon? December 10th. 
All right, so I would suggest that you do your first 20 miler in the middle of November, and I would do my last 20 miler in the beginning of the last week of November. So they're about two weeks apart. Gotcha. And so the first one, what I would do is just test it. I'd say, all right, I'm going to hold 155 and see what 155 does for 20 miles. And then you're going to ask yourself some serious questions. How was my energy? How was my feeding? Did I need more? Did I need less? Was it on point? And how did my pace look over the course of those 20 miles? Right? Absolutely. And absolutely stick to your guns for 155 beats per minute the whole ride. Because if your heart rate's all over the map, then you've got no way to determine whether or not that particular expense was sustainable. Yeah. Then your strategy goes out the window, essentially, and you're kind of just hoping to perform rather than using yeah. plausible per, uh, data to perform. You know, so. like, like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan till they get punched in the face. Yes, sir. So you go 155. Now, I'm assuming that the, the, the events that you're speaking of where you're holding that eight-minute pace were under 10 miles? Uh, approximately. I would say between eight and 10 usually is kind of what I do my base runs at. All right. So the point being is that over the course of 20 miles through dehydration, yep. you're going to lose your fluids. You're going to start to dehydrate. And mm -hmm. that is going to all by itself is going to cause your heart rate to escalate. Yep. So if your heart rate is escalating and you're sticking to your guns, your pace is also going to degrade, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to ask yourself, was the problem that you did not stay on top of the hydration or the electrolyte balance? And that's what caused you to degrade. Or was it a function of the energy being bled off because where you are time and space. Your I, and I don't have it in front of me. I wish I did because we didn't plan this conversation. But if I pulled up your data and looked at it, we would find what the percentage of fat utilization is relative to sugar and mm -hmm. then get a sense of the timeline of the percentage of sugar uh, or the calories from sugar that are being expended over the course of the time you're out there. So let's assume that inside of that two hours, you're looking at about to uh, 215, 220, two hours and 20 minutes or so. Um, how much of your energy is coming away from your carbohydrate store over the course of that window? Now, we're just kind of discounting the dehydration. Now, we're just talking about ener energy availability, right? Mm -hmm. Because in concert with the dehydration, when the energy starts going away, there lies the rub. You're losing sugar. You're losing your hydration, your blood starts to get thick, and the wheels start falling off the bus. So it may very well be that 155 is a little bit too aggressive. You might, yep. you might need to be like at 150. Yeah. So let's just say that we held, and mind you, that's only five beats different. But five beats. But it makes, a, it makes a world of difference. It can make a big difference in the percentage of carbohydrate that's being used. Mm -hmm. I've shown people where the difference in percentage of carbohydrate utilization in a five-beat window for some people may make a difference of 30%. Mm -hmm. So if you're bleeding off your carbohydrate stores 30% greater because you're five beats per minute higher, it's a problem. So let's, yeah. just, say, let's just say that you went held 155, sacrificed your pace. Um, so let's go... Let's, let's just say that I'm going back to my calculator. Um, let's say that you rain back to eight and a half mile pace. What am I doing here? Oh, okay. Jeez, am I screwing this up? No, I mean, you're, you're, so what you're doing is taking five beats away, and then essentially I guess we're, we're attributing six seconds per beat, uh, and then that would be 30 seconds. So. Wait a minute. I'm going to look. Okay, I'm sorry. I screwed something up. So uh, looking at the... I don't have my glasses on, so the problem is. Eight-minute pace is uh, 329. Okay. 329.36. So if you, were, if you were able 
to stay at 155, and the yield was still that eight-minute pace for the whole ride. You'd 330 miss, would be more realistic, yeah. Yeah, you'd be missing your mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and incidentally, I do this with people and have done this with people for years where we look at the energy costs based on the information we gathered from the test. We look at time trials, and we get within that one week away from the race. And from the data that we looked at, we could give them a very solid uh, recommendation in respect to their pacing strategy. So where I was going with this, by the way, before I kind of got scuttled, is let's say that we were to hold you at 8.30 pace, and that puts you at like just a little below 150, and we held you there for the first two hours, and then because we were kind of conserving our carbohydrate stores, our feeding strategy was on point, hydration was good, then we put the hammer down. We start shoving up on 160, 165, and just kind of feathering into that lactate. And hopefully, because we did our lactate tolerance training properly, it doesn't take us out. We're able to manage it. Maybe even better, start to rely on that lactate as an energy source. We get through the rest of it and maybe bring our pace into a negative split where maybe we're running a 745 pace. So what you sacrificed in the beginning, you make up in the last hour. And lo and behold, you get closer to the number. And I'm just kind of throwing this stuff out randomly. I don't know that it's two hours. I don't know that it's an hour and a half. It's, this is why the time trials are important. Because then you can start developing a strategy. And this is why, incidentally, I have you do two time trials. Because the second time trial is where you experiment. Where you think, okay, here's where I was for the first 20 miles. And this is what the yield was. I need to get a little bit more out of this. So let me see whether, like five miles before the conclusion of this time trial, if I bump it up to 160, 165, what happens to me then? And, no, it makes sense. And realizing, of course, that there are another six miles of travel to contend with, you still have a really good sense of what you're capable of with those two 20-mile time trials. So that's why I never really – there's a lot of guys that will push you out to 22, 23 miles – and I just found that I've got really good success just keeping people down to that 20 miles. And this goes back to, I think, and if you could expound upon this, because I think uh, I think we've touched on it a bit, is is being more fat adapted rather than, you know, just being a, uh, an athlete that relies on their sugar stores because you die out faster, correct? Well, look, I don't even like the term fat adapted. I think it's a ridiculous proposition to even discuss that because at the end of the day, when you start to get your heart rate up, Mm-hmm you are no longer going to be accessing those fat stores. Gotcha. Fat burns in the presence of oxygen. And unless mm -hmm. somebody finds some unique way of changing that system of operation, the end of the day is when you start going anaerobic, when you get over your aerobic zone we're talking about, your body's going mm -hmm. after that sugar. I don't care who you are. And the advantage you would have, and if you were to even use the, the term fat adapted, Fat adapted would mean that you've actually been able to push your threshold further north where you could support more effort before going totally anaerobic. It's not going to be a function of the way you fed yourself. You know, you could cause your body to become more reliant on fat stores as long as the energy cost does not exceed your aerobic potential. You follow what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, gotcha. So the metabolic cost of work is a function of the ventilatory consequence of the work. When you start okay. going anaerobic, meaning that your body becomes more into this glycolytic system, there's no turning back unless you slow down and walk. Mm -hmm. Anybody that's hoping that the, they're going to start eating fat and not eating any carbohydrates is going to put them <coughs> in a better place. They're, gonna, they're either going to run long for really, really slow, or they're going to have a miserable time at a marathon. They're certainly not going to run, at least I don't believe you're going to run sub-320 if you stay in your fat stores. Of course, yeah. Uh, that makes sense. I know a lot of people are probably shaking their head right now going, "What? wait a minute, what did you just say about the fat adapting? <laughs> yeah, the the, the anti-carbs, especially when it comes to, you know, those type of people that eat that lifestyle for longer races, uh, I don't think lends yourself to success, especially when you need that, that fuel and whatnot um, to pretty much withstand the, the cost of work that you're putting on your body. So, You know, at the end of the day, 
The way these types of things get popular is some athlete that is respected in the community throws this out there and people want to eat what Mikey's eating, right? Remember the commercials? Absolutely. <laughs> so, they, they, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, so-and-so does it, so if he does it, I must do it too. And then they get caught up in that kind of mindset. Now, if that's you, if that's the way you, you roll and you just want to follow the leaders, so to speak, let me recommend a book to you. And I'm going to give a plug to my good friend, Matt Fitzgerald. He wrote a book called The Endurance Diet. And I think that's the name of it. If you pull up mattfitzgerald.org, you'll find all of his books. But I recommend this latest book, which I think it's called The Endurance Diet. And what essentially he did, and I've talked about this before, but, you know, it might be some new people listening. What he's done is he's traveled around the world and sat with some of the greatest endurance athletes on the planet and basically looked at the type of feeding strategies they had. He sat with team, professional team cyclists and just observed what their feeding strategies were. He'd interviewed people that he couldn't get access to where they wrote into him and just basically laid out what their feeding strategies looked like. And the commonality among all of the greatest athletes that he had a chance to interact with or query was that 70% of their diet was carbohydrate. And we're talking about lean, powerful, world-class endurance athletes from a variety of sports, from cross-country skiers to professional cyclists to the Kenyans, to all the greatest runners, all the greatest endurance athletes on the planet. And he got a good cross-section of it. I, I, I know him well. So I know that he, he actually traveled around to, actually, he actually went to Africa to train with these Kenyans and basically looked at the way they're feeding themselves. 70% carbohydrate was the average. And these people were eating buttloads of food. The problem with most people is they don't train often enough, smart enough, to get away with eating the type of volume of food that they're taking on. Which, incidentally, is why we do resting metabolic assessments. To determine how many calories your body requires relative to the things you do to it. And that's giving people a baseline of understanding as to how many calories they should be consuming while they're training. But the point of the matter is to just because so-and-so said he's going to start eating fat, doesn't eat carbs because it slows him down and makes him puffy, bad idea. Hey, I'm on board with you. And I think to the RMR test, I mean, you find that most athletes are either eating too much or not enough. So uh, to just get a calorie expenditure of, of where you should be in terms of what you're burning and then going through, you know, with you or, or someone, you know, uh, of knowledge of, you know, what do you burn in terms of uh, just rest? And then also in terms of your just normal workload, whether it's just your day-to-day -day job. And then on top of that, what you put in, in terms of fitness, um, you have a good idea of kind of where you need to be. And then, you know, obviously kind of curtail what you need in terms of, you know, um, your, your foods and whatnot to, to get there. So, well, you know, what's interesting is that I would say that the majority of the athletes I test do not eat enough and yeah. they need to see it. They need to be able to see and validate what their body requires if they don't do a thing. So you're, for those that are listening and don't understand this, if you were to do a resting metabolic assessment, what it tells you is how many calories your body requires if it does nothing for 24 hours. So meaning if you were to lay down the way I have you lay down and not move, just sit there or lie there, for 24 hours, how many calories your body is looking for or consuming. It also will show you where those calories are coming from, whether they're accessing a greater percentage of fat versus carbohydrate or the opposite. And then through the VO2 test, we find out what your aerobic cost, anaerobic cost is of your training. So let's just say hypothetically in your case, when you're aerobic, you're burning 600 calories per hour. Um, and I'm going to guess it's probably a little bit greater than that, but let's just say that's six. And then we find out that what your body requires in concert with that 
if you just lie there for 24 hours. Better than that, let's take into account your daily activities and add that caloric expense. We may find out that what you need is about 3,700 calories a day, assuming that all you did was train for one hour. And this really is shocking for a lot of people. They find out that they really need to be... I've had guys, well, a good example is Hunter McIntyre. If he trains only an hour, he needs 5,500 calories. And that guy never just trains for an hour. I mean, I know him. I've been working with him and training him for a couple of years now. This guy is constantly moving, constantly moving. He's probably needing about 6,000 calories on average daily. And mind you, when we got him to eat more, he got leaner because your body will start to let go of the fat when it starts to trust that you're getting enough energy coming in. Because realize that fat on the body is an energy reserve. And your body will start to access, talk about being fat adapted. When you start eating better, your body will get better at utilizing fat as an energy source. And I've seen that happen over the course of uh, tests, where I've tested somebody, changed their diet, and test them again, and saw the outcome of the, the, the changes in their nutrition bore out the fact that they became more efficient in their caloric use. So there you go. I know we got off onto this rant. Uh, at the end of the day, what we we're talking about is the whole concept, the global concept of getting a sense of this heart rate response and using the data to better serve you as you train. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, kind of going into our off season, this is the perfect time to implement it. Uh, one, you know, obviously, if you already know your information, just kind of putting on those base miles, taking, taking, uh, you know, some sort of a rest, uh, as we spoke to before a month, um, if you have some injuries, maybe longer, but if you don't, if you really kind of have just been, you know, running amok and not really using any sort of protocol, uh, this is the time for you, um, on whatever level it is, whether you just want to, you know, finish a race or you want to be on top of that podium or everything in between to get that data, to understand that data and understand that, these are the things that are going to be game changing you from you, not only from a training perspective and a performance perspective, but an injury prevention perspective. Right. Well, and again, the time trials are telling you something. It's whether you're paying attention or not. So let's yep. just say, for example, I've had this conversation before with people. Let's just have this conversation. Let's say that you told me that your goal was you wanted to break a four hour marathon. OK, so let me just kind of look at the pace calculator one more time. And we're looking at, uh, that means to run a 358.11, your pace needs to be 905 mile. You're basically going to need to run a nine-minute mile for 26 miles. Now, when you do your base runs, and your base runs are still telling you in a time trial, let's say in a 5K time trial, that your pace is 10 minutes. That dog won't hunt. You're not going to turn you're not going to turn that 10 minute pace into a 9 minute pace average for 26 miles. Because in order to get to that 9 minute pace, you're going to have to break some eggs. You're going to get up into your sugar stores and it's probably going to take you out. You so, probably have to be a miracle worker to yeah. gain a minute to gain a minute uh, among you know twenty three miles. I mean that would be well. And you get uh, people that talk to me all the time about I hope I can do this and I hope I can do that. Hope hope isn't a strategy. No, you have to you have to have been doing it. So if I'm looking at this and I'm saying my aerobic pace is just not coming down, then you got to start asking yourself some hard questions. What's lacking in the training? What am I missing? It could very well be that just commonly you're not getting enough volume. In order to get an aerobic adaptation, and it's very unique to the individual, you need to put in the appropriate amount of time under that aerobic influence to get that adaptation. So if you're looking for your pace to improve, it could be that you're not putting enough aerobic volume in. It could be that your mechanics are flawed. So when you start to bring up your pace a little bit, your mechanics start to increase the cost of the work, and that holds you back. So you may not be doing enough 
form work. You're not doing what I call motor skill development drills where you're working on the way you move because if you move better, your cost goes down. And if your cost goes down and you increase the volume, then you start to see those numbers you're looking for. And I'll find people that'll come to me often that'll tell me, hey, you're not gonna believe this, but my heart rate pace has dropped two minutes. That could mean that their volume is good or their mechanics have improved. And you'll find that when your mechanics improve, it's easier to get the volume. Because the other problem is that when you're trying to put in the volume and you're running poorly, you break, right? I used, to put that, yep. I used to put that question out to people. What is your break point in your volume? And they'd come back to me with comments like, oh, whenever I get past 30, my knee or my shin, my back. They always can tell you where that dreaded pain comes from relative to the increase in their volume. No, that makes sense. I can tell you from a perspective, and I know it's irresponsible on my part, um, Saturday is usually a long day for me in terms of uh, trail running. We have a pretty, for, for sea level Dallas, uh, we have a trail that I probably run about two, two and a half hours. I've been doing that the last few months. And I kind of hit that point just with the elevation gain, I believe in that time frame, it's about 1700 feet. And I'd hit that breaking point around 10 or 11 miles and I can never figure out why. Um, and what I figured out was essentially is my electrolyte feeding strategy wasn't there. The formulas, um, you know, the, the volume and things like that. But once I started to put that into play, um, I didn't have any issues. Um, so it's just, it, it's really, you know, like you said, asking yourself some hard questions because, um, if you don't, you're just going to kind of, you know, it's the definition of insanity. You're just going to continue to get the same results and you're going to continue to, to either get injured, not, not increase your performance like you want to, or, or just, you know, in between both of those. So. Well, the novice mistake I find is there's only one question, more or less. Or less, yeah. <laughs> do I, I'm not doing enough. But mm-hmm. if you're doing it wrong and you do more, you hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, or I, I, I need to do less. And if you're doing it wrong and you do less, you're going to get worse. But that's usually the question people ask themselves. Am I doing more or less? And it's it's deeper than that. And again, it becomes a function of looking at this data. And incidentally, I think we should close with this because we're really starting to carry this on. But my day-to-day is I'm looking at data of people that I work with. Mm-hmm. And we try to draw conclusions based on the information I see. And I have clients. As a matter of fact, I had a client. He's probably going to listen to this. And I'm not going to use his name because I'm going to throw him under the bus right now. Is I fired him. You know, here's a client that is paying me to advise him, and I fired him because he would say, Hey, where's my workout? And I'm saying, Where's my data? If I don't know what you've done, I can't in good faith tell you what to do next. And he just thought that just put the workouts up, I'll do them. He thought that that's just kind of how the thing works. I, I basically told him, I said, Look, you're making me irresponsible by asking me to write these workouts for you when I have no idea what you're doing. I don't know whether you did it. I don't know whether you did it right. I don't know whether you, you didn't do it at all. I mean, I can't, I can't in good faith give you advice if you don't give me the information I need to give you that advice. And I know that there's a lot of cases where that is not the relationship with a private coach. Uh, you have to have this information and you have to understand what the information means to give people good advice. But So at the end of the day, you're going to run this marathon in December. Yes. And who do you like for, let's just go ahead and put this out. We'll use this as a closer. Who do you like for the world's toughest mutter, male, female? Uh, I think our great friend of the podcast, Steph Bishop, for the woman, uh, for sure. Just kind of obviously, you know. Uh, getting to talk to her, uh, hearing her strategy. She seems like everything's on point in terms of race. Uh, for the men, are Albin and Atkins doing a team race? or are they, They're running they solo. Race ex- oh, oof. Uh, I probably have to go uh, put my money on uh, Atkins. I'm going with Albin. Okay. If they're going to run solo, I'm going to go with Albin. Okay. Albin has just shown himself to be a force to be reckoned with. Oh yeah. I mean, he the the Spartan World Championships, he crushed it. He OCR Championships, he crushed it. 
um, he's starting to scare me. It's like you never hear from him. And listen, Atkins is an amazing athlete, don't get me wrong. And clearly it's going to come down between those two. I don't see really anybody else. I think that there are going to be in the top five. Uh, I'd love to see Chris Mendoza show up in the top three, four. Trevor, I'd love to see um, Austin Azar show up in the top five. But short of that, who am I missing for solo event? I don't, I don't know who else I could be missing here. And then for the females, you know, I, uh, I really like Steph. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I like her. I want her to win. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, the reason I sound like I'm hedging a little bit is because I really enjoyed speaking with Allison. And I kind of hope she wins because I think it would be cool for her to win. Mm -hmm. uh, I think she's going to be tough. She's going to be right there in the hunt. It's going to come down to her. You, you can't discount Amelia Boone. Of course. Of I course, mean, yeah. clearly she's going to go into this thing with the attitude that she wants to come back and win it. Uh, I don't know whether she's physically capable of it, but then I don't know enough about her to be very honest to make those kind of judgments. Just you talk to me about a broken femur and that just scares the crap out of me. So I think it's going to come down to Stephanie or Allison. It's going to come down to those two. And the two-man team thing, I'd love to see Miguel pull it out. Um, he had a really bad time at uh, Tahoe, and I know he wants this really badly. And he's, uh, I think he's teaming with Mark Jones. And I like, like both those guys. And quite frankly, I don't know, the popularity's kind of waned for that two-man thing. I don't know whether there's anybody changed their, their mindset in respect to whether they're going to compete in that, that, uh, that non-payday, hard-to-do event. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, all in all, it's going to be a pretty interesting event. Um, it's going to be one of those races that I wish I was there and I didn't go to. Hey, there's still time, though. I mean, you, you, uh, you cut it close for Tahoe and you decided to go, so you never know. Yeah, I'm just too busy right now, buddy. I, I'm, yeah. I'm too busy. I'm too, too busy. So I, I don't think I'll make it. Now watch me show up. <laughs> well, look, uh, um, once again, it was great having you. And uh, those of you that are interested in participating in these clinics, we've got coming up in December, the uh, Philadelphia clinic is sold out for testing. Jersey, I think, has two slots left as of this conversation. But um, the day two is still up for grabs. Anybody wants to come get a little bit of love. It's going to be amazing. I, I, I don't want the people on the East Coast feeling like they're getting slighted because we're doing something different here on the West Coast. I intend to come in guns blaring when I get to the East Coast. And uh, got a lot of friends out there. I'm looking really forward to being out there with them guys on the East Coast. And then, of course, next year, we've got a couple more clinics, one in March scheduled out here and then another one in June. Information on all of that can be found at naturalrunningcoach.net. Naturalrunningcoach.net. Look, you have a wonderful day. By the way, what's the weather like where you are right now? So I'll tell you, it's uh, interesting. Uh, woke up this morning, got to the track. It was 45 degrees. Yeah. I went to the track yesterday, 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. It was 95 degrees. Oh, my God. Right now, it's about 95 degrees. Yesterday, it got up to 104 Mother Nature really is upset at somebody, and it looks like uh, she's really increasing the heat for California, and we're going to have a tough winter in uh, Dallas. It's interesting, though, just bringing that point up, uh, the Ultra Beast uh, is making its way to Dallas this weekend, and the temperature start for that as of today is 36 degrees. So um, really just unknown to Texas, something like that. So, But, you know, with the luck we have, it's probably just going to start snowing, so. Well, we've got the Big Bear Beast coming up this weekend, and that's at Elevation. I think that uh, Big Bear, I believe that that race is going to start at about 6,000 feet, thereabouts. Oh, wow. And I know that the mountain goes up to 10. I don't know how far they're climbing. I don't know the course. Mm -hmm. But I think it's probably going to be in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably going to be in the 70s this weekend. And the morning might show up to be about 50 or something like that. But it's just been so unseemingly hot this time of year right now. It's crazy. It's like 100. It's been in the hundreds all week. 
Yeah. It's freaking right now. I'm frying here in my office. That's well, I, I don't know if that's a good or a bad problem to have, but it, uh, it's a terrible I'm enjoying problem. the cold. Yeah. I'm enjoying the cold. So if it was just hot, that'd be one thing, but it's really windy yeah. too. So it's like a microwave oven just blowing on you. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm in Iraq. Oh, <laughs> all right, man. Uh, look, uh, let's shut it down. Thanks for getting on. Uh, talk to you again soon. Next week, right? Yes, next week. Next week, guys. So, All right. See ya. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.